Hello, and be happy, Gordon. I'm touching your breasts. Welcome to Best of the Rest, the show where we take a second look at movies that were poorly received upon release and challenge ourselves to only talk about the things we like and what the movie does well. It's TV show movie month, and this week we are talking the 1999 film Wild Wild West. My name is Chris Logan, and I am joined, as always, by my reluctant at first, but in the end we get a long co-host, Andrew Williams. You ready for Wild Wild West, Andrew? Yes. (laughs) You seem uh, enthused. What's your history with this movie? Have you seen it before this week? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Um, Definitely saw it. Don't... I can't remember if it was in theaters. I... This was definitely when I was in my full-on go-to-the-movies-in-the-summer-with-my-dad, my my sister, my brother. Um, I just don't know if this one uh, cracked into the let-me-take-my-burgeoning-children-to-go-see category for my dad. Um, Or I don't know like if I was just like, oh, man, I want to go see Wild Wild West. Like, I I don't know, but (laughs) I did watch it a lot as a kid. One of those things that was on TV all the time. Uh, I mean, it was Will Smith in in the late 90s. That's, that's, it's, you're going to watch it. You're going to see it. Yeah. So I've definitely seen it a bunch. This is another one I think my mom really liked. Um, but <laughs> I got to start classic. remembering that. I start remembering that more often ahead of time to just be like, hey, mom, what do you think of this? But, uh, but yeah, um, definitely familiar with this movie going in. There are aspects of this movie that are seared into my brain, uh, lines of dialogue that I definitely still remembered. Uh, Absolutely. Even now. And, Absolutely. Uh, not only the movie, but Andrew, this is, we're, we're 20, this is the year 2023. We're, we're almost 23 years after the release of this movie. And still, to this day, uh, I, I can be, just be alone with my thoughts in a quiet room. And my brain will say, wiki, wiki, wow. <laughs> it just uh, happens. It, it is, just happens. It wiki, just wiki, wow. happens. Um, uh, yeah, pretty much the same. I mean, I I think I saw it in theaters, but don't have really a distinct memory of doing so. It definitely would have been something I saw with my dad and maybe my brothers. And I, I mean, I definitely liked it back then. And I watched it a lot on TV. I always knew the movie was kind of weird. But revisiting it now, which is the first time I've watched this in at least 15 years, it's weirder than I remembered. It is so weird that this is the direction they go with this property. Um, but there's, uh, dare I say, still plenty of positives to take away that we are going to dive into our first movie in TV show movie month. That is, of course, the month of February. We are only talking about movies that are based on a TV show like Wild Wild West. I only know that because my dad told me, like, at the time. He's like, oh, Wild Wild West. That was, like, an old TV show. Since then, I've never seen a clip from the show. I know nothing about it. I I, – had my dad not told me that years ago, I might not have known that (laughs) to this day or as we started researching this movie. But, yeah, technically, this movie's uh, based on a TV show that was, I don't know, a modest hit. Maybe, like, a – maybe, like, a Get Smart level – uh, popularity from what I gather? Uh, I went for four seasons, 65 to 69, had a couple of uh, a couple of television movies that aired in the late 70s, uh, 1980 or so. Um, so, you know, it one of those things where uh, 
I mean, there was definitely a following, but uh, you could definitely look at uh, maybe the receipts of this movie and just kind of see how much the world was really clamoring for a new take on Wild Wild West. Um, a uh, Yeah, a, a bit of a... I feel like there's no way to spin that this is kind of an odd choice of all the television shows to adapt yeah. into a film, but this was a period of time where we were... That was pretty in vogue. I gotta think Mission Impossible was like, they saw that and they were like, oh wow, what old 60s TV show properties do we have that we can update and modernize uh, yeah, which Mission Impossible kind of you've even got stuff like the Flintstones you've got even the Adams Family movies from earlier in the earlier in the decade like there was the Brady Bunch movies I mean there's there's plenty of examples of them what's looking that Val back. Kilmer one uh, Saints, Saints another one yeah, yeah, yep yeah. another television show The Fugitive based off a television show Harrison Ford it, it 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 was a very weird time to just be like hey we're gonna take this television show and make a movie out of it. And in some cases, big results. Uh, in some cases, uh, a little less. Um, and uh, unfortunately for uh, audiences and critics, this seems this movie kind of fell on the less side when it came out. Yeah, definitely uh, poorly received. Let's jump into those numbers. Uh, first of all, this movie is released June 30th, 1999. My personal favorite year for film. It's made on a budget of $170 million. Andrew, that is a lot of money today. It was a lot of money in 1999. One of the (laughs) most expensive movies uh, made at the time, and it's still fairly high up on the list. At the box office, it brings in $222 million, which might sound impressive for 1999 if it weren't for that budget that was almost as big and definitely greater once you factor in marketing and all the other costs. So this movie is losing money for the studio. As you said, Andrew, critically not well received. I would say this is critically panned. It holds just a 16% critic score on Rotten Tomatoes. Critics were not saying nice things about this movie, Andrew. They were not. Um, and there, there are some numbers that put that budget as high as $240 million. And just wild. that's it's wild, wild, Chris. Um, but uh, <laughs> um, and if you happen to be located in the right space geographically, um, no, um, but uh, it was not well received. Um, like I said, $222 million, Um and this was like you had Barry Sonnenfeld directing. We'll talk about more about him, Will Smith. So the Men in Black team, a lot of that getting back together, seeing if we could make this work. And my goodness, it did not repeat that success. Um, it was nominated for eight Golden Raspberry Awards in the year 2000. Um, and Robert Conrad, uh, alum of the show from Jingle All the Way and who played Jim West in the original show, apparently arrived at the ceremony and accepted all of those awards in person to object to the film. He was not a fan of it either. Um, (laughs) So, um, yeah. So needless to say, um, the response was not positive. There was um, not a lot of people. I I assume this was something that definitely had uh, franchise hopes uh, with uh, getting the men in black people back. And obviously Will Smith kind of front and center. Um, I feel like there was definitely an expectation that we're going to, we're going to keep this going, but that obviously did not come to pass. Um, like I said, the, the numbers just were not there. 
And it's not like there was anything else really being like, oh, well, at least audiences really liked it. No. So um, the movie was an uphill battle from day one, basically. Let's take a look at this creative team. The movie is written by a couple of writing teams. We have S.S. Wilson and Brent Maddock, as well as the team of Jeffrey Price and Peter Seaman. Now, those last two we've talked about before just a couple months ago because they wrote How the Grinch Stole Christmas. But that uh, the main credited writing team of S.S. Wilson and Brent Maddock, looking at their filmography, their highest profile stuff before this is going to be the Short Circuit movies and the first two Tremors films, which they wrote. And you look at this movie, and that makes a lot of sense. Combining yeah. the wackiness and you know sci-fi of Short Circuit with the Western vibe of uh, Tremors. Yeah, put those two together, and you got a Wild Wild West stew, baby. Yeah, you got... You got something. We also have a, a story credit for uh, Jim and John Thomas. Um, they were, uh, they were, I guess, accredited on an earlier version of this film. This, this is one of those movies that I think was in development for a long time. Uh, there was uh, a version that was apparently uh, going to be directed by Richard Donner and star Mel Gibson. Um, Richard Donner, ironically, directed some episodes of the original show. Um, it's quite so a coincidence. It is, um, but uh, yeah, it's a lot of a lot of people get this move, get hands on this movie before it gets to the finish line, and the writing room is no exception to that. Uh, there's always kind of a rule of thumb, you know, the more writers on a movie, the less its chances of being consistent are. But um, too many cooks, too many cooks, um, and this is a movie where you've got six different people. That have writing credits. To be fair, almost all of them are pairs. I think all of them are pairs, so it's three different groups. Uh, so it's not as many people as you would think, but still a lot of people. And then obviously, we we you, I don't know if we've really talked about it, but Writers Guild uh, rules are very uh, very stringent on making sure that people get their names on films and. You know, you've heard writers before that are like, I got credited for that film, and I think they kept like six lines of dialogue. Like, there's all tons of stuff like that. And even instances where, you know, they wrote such an earlier version that the final version is so different, it may as well be a completely different script, but they still have to get credit. And I think that's definitely the case for Jim and John Thomas here, just getting story credit there. But um, yeah, a lot of people getting this movie to the finish line. Um, including our uh, our friends from The Grinch. The movie is directed by Barry Sonnenfeld, capping off a crazy run in the 90s, directing both Adam's Family Films, which are beloved movies, Get Shorty, which is a bona fide cult classic, and Men in Black, which is uh, just honestly one of the best action movies to come out of the 90s. So... Uh, as you mentioned, Andrew, this is teaming him back up with Will Smith for another sci-fi buddy cop movie. This is a sci-fi movie, right? Like, it feels weird calling a movie set in the 1800s sci-fi, but th this is a sci-fi film, right? They call this a steampunk western on Wikipedia. Um, but steampunk in itself could be classified essentially as a subgenre of science fiction. So yes, you are are correct that it is a sci-fi western essentially. Um it always is weird like 
John Carter is another one that like takes place like in the aftermath of the Civil War and he goes to Mars. And you're just like, well, <laughs> but because he's on Mars, you never question that it's science fiction. You're like, oh, he's on Mars. It's science fiction. Like the year Stuff's never weird occurs over there. to you. Yeah. Like you're like, well, he's on another planet. Of course it's sci-fi. But you put it on Earth and add sci-fi elements in the 1800s and you're like, is it sci-fi? It feels weird to call it sci-fi. But no, Something about it being in the past feels weird, even though that, I don't know, I always think of sci-fi as like future technology that quote unquote right. could exist, you know, we're like predicting in a way where it could go is kind of how I always think about it. So I don't know, it's, it's, it's more fictional to set it in the past, but it's still for some reason. It feels weird to 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 call it sci-fi, but yeah, I think at the end of the day, I've got to agree it is a science fiction Western film. Yeah, steampunk, I guess the idea, like the, the heavy industrial, the steam engine type stuff, that's the stuff that's kind of hallmarks of, of the steampunk aesthetic. Uh, so I think it definitely fits here. A lot of the stuff that Artemis Gordon and uh, Arliss Loveless are doing, but... Uh, yeah, yeah, but a magnetic collar that decapitates you or shining lights through your eyeballs to project the last image you saw... I have nothing to do with steam, Andrew. <laughs> Those aren't steam powered. That's the punk Devices. part of it. Um, oh, of course. Cut, cutting people's heads off, looking into their dead eyes. That's punk, clearly. Um, okay. That's now the punk makes half. Um, Thanks for clearing that up. Um, no, I, uh, but I do love Barry Sonnenfeld. We've talked about him before, obviously, alum of the show with Ben and Black 2. Um, it, it's interesting. He has this incredible run in the 90s, but kind of tapers off. Like this entire century, he has directed five movies. Um, two of which were Men in Black 2 and 3 so he just doesn't really get out there and I mean I talked about it last time one of my favorite things he ever did was the pilot to Patrick Warburton's Tick series Um, does occasionally come in and direct some television shows I guess that's what he does kind of a little bit more often these days but uh, I love Barry Sonnenfeld he's one of my favorite directors people don't talk about him enough uh, obviously did start off as a uh, cinematographer uh, working with a variety of different people. I mean, he was the cinematographer on Miller's Crossing and Raising Arizona and Blood Simple with the Coen brothers. He was uh, the cinematographer on Big with Penny Marshall and When Harry Met Sally with Rob Reiner and also Misery with Rob Reiner. So he's actually shot a bunch of uh, arguably classic, cult classic, and uh, just some great movies. And then obviously in the early 90s is when he makes that jump to directing. Um, and we just... Again, we've we've taught the Adams family movies are classics. The I'll never be sad about watching the tick pilot that he does with Patrick Warburton. He's just wonderful. And he also has a really good book out there. I bought it a couple of years ago and I read it and it's very good. So um but yeah, love Barry Sonnenfeld and even when he doesn't hit it out of the park or the movie doesn't necessarily live up to expectations, I think he's still doing good stuff. Well, Andrew, with that, I think it's time that we uh we jump into this movie here wild wild west you ready i am when u.s army captain jim west and u.s marshal artemis gordon cross paths on the job u.s president ulysses s grant decides to pair them up to hunt down General Bloodbath McGrath, who is thought responsible for the disappearance of several top scientists. Their mission eventually leads them to former Confederate officer Arliss Loveless, who reveals himself as the mastermind of an evil plot to demand the surrender of the United States 
by force. Loveless has amassed a small army equipped with advanced engineering technology and a giant metal spider. And now Jim West and Artemis Gordon must rely on bravado and quick thinking to save the day. Also, the year is 1869. I realized that was important and forgot to put it in there. This movie takes place in the 1800s, and it's, uh, it's a weird one, Andrew. It's a weird movie. It is. Uh, four years after the end of the Civil War. Um, it is uh, a very weird movie. Um, and there is a whole lot going on. Actually, it's not really true. It's a pretty narrow scope for a movie with a giant robotic spider. But, um, sorry. <laughs> giant steampunk spider. Steam, yeah. Um, but, Very uh, important. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, even as a kid, um, the giant spider is always just a surprise. And now, obviously, after having heard Kevin Smith's Superman story, it makes the spider even funnier. What's um, the too long didn't listen on that story for anybody that hasn't heard it, Andrew? So, in short, in the mid-90s, after um, Chasing Amy came out, Kevin Smith got offered a lot of rewrite work opportunities, and one of which was those was a new Superman movie. And it was a lot of hoops and level, a lot of hoops and uh, things to jump through, but he ultimately has a meeting with the producer on that film, a gentleman by the name of John Peters. John Peters is a producer on this film. He is also a producer on a great many films, uh, including Batman, a bunch of other stuff. Also, probably not the best person in the world, but either way. Um, he has Kevin Smith has a meeting with him and he outlines three things that he wants in a Superman movie. Superman can't fly. Superman can't wear the suit. And he has to fight a giant spider in the third act. Um, and Kevin Smith, I don't know which one's the weirdest, Andrew. I don't (laughs) know which one of those three is the strangest one. (laughs) Kevin Smith's response was still my favorite. He's like, Oh, so you don't want Superman to have two of the most classic hallmarks associated with Superman. But the giant spider intrigues me. <laughs> like, you know. Like, um, so either way, uh, Kevin Smith writes a draft. Tim Burton signs on uh, to make the movie. This is what ultimately becomes Tim Burton's failed Superman Lives, uh, starring Nick Cage. Uh, it does not come to pass. There have been a great many stories on what that movie was going to be. Um, Tim Burton apparently did get John Peters to relent on the suit and probably the flying, too. But... Um, the movie never gets made, and then a couple of years later, Kevin Smith recounts going to see Wild Wild West. And lo and behold, a movie produced by John Peters in the third act, a giant spider shows up. <laughs> and uh, it was uh, one of the, uh, like, the payoff for that joke is just so good. Um, I highly recommend it. It's on his first Evening with Kevin Smith DVD, but uh, it's a very wild, crazy, twisting story. That and the Prince story are worth the price of admission alone on it. But yes, in short, um, John Peters demanded a giant spider in a Superman movie. And when it didn't happen, he put that spider in Wild Wild West. Not just put it in, but made spiders like the entire defining iconography of Kenneth Branagh's character. So, yes, uh, wild. It's wild. It's wild, wild. It's wild, wild, Andrew. Yes. All right, before we jump into all these scenes, though, of course, we're going to talk about the cast. Starting with the high point, the best casting and best performance of the film. Every episode, we recognize one person who goes above and beyond the Call of Duty that they elevate the quality of the entire film with their performance. And we recognize that person by giving them the Mark Strong Award. Andrew, kick us off here. Who is getting your Mark Strong Award 
or Wild Wild West? I don't think anyone in the world is going to be shocked to find that I am giving the Mark Strong Award to Kenneth Branagh for his performance as Dr. Arliss Loveless. Um, He is chewing the scenery every single moment that he is on that screen. Um, <laughs> there, he, he left none for anybody else, and it shows. But um, hashtag PP. But uh, he's a very interesting villain. Uh, he is a survivor of the Confederate Army in the Civil War, where he essentially lost the entire lower half of his body. Uh, he rides around on a very, uh, a very uh, elaborate uh, wheelchair um, that mimics a lot of modern technology. Um, and he also, like I said, really likes spiders. Like his generals wear spiders. Everybody's got like spider webs on their uniforms and stuff. It's it's quite literally everywhere. Um, but I do love his performance. He is giving it everything he's got. He is giving this movie a memorable villain, which is something that you always want, especially in a situation like this. And he's the guy that conceived and drives the giant spider. So he really gets to have have the cake and eat it too. It's it's ridiculous, but also wonderful, and I love it. So no question for me, it's Kenneth Branagh as our villain, Dr. Arliss Loveless. Andrew, it is a classic Andrew Williams move to give the villain, especially the scenery-chewing villain, the Mark Strong Award. But in this case, I am agreeing with you 1,000%. We were about to have a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I had a pretty good... Actually, going into... I mean, his performance has always stood out to me. But going into this rewatch, I'm like, yeah, but it's also Will Smith. And it's like classic era Will Smith. But I watched the movie, and it's just undeniable. The person that is entertaining me the most with their performance, the person that is elevating this material, is without a doubt Kenneth Branagh. And talk about scenes and lines that are burned into your brain. Uh, He's a part of most of them, most of the scenes that have stuck with me over the years. And just the weird... I mean, he's obviously Southern, because he's part of the Confederate Army, but... He's doing a lot more than just a Southern accent uh, with the way he enunciates and pronounces things. And one that always stood out with me whenever he is recounting all the things that he lost in the war, including 35 feet of small intestine. That has always stuck with me, that specific pronunciation of intestine uh, is wild. It is bonkers. I don't know if someone, I don't know if Barry gave him this direction or if he just looked at this character and was like, well, he's clearly unhinged. I'm going to go, you know, all out with it. Or maybe it's the fact that he's confined to his chair the entire time. He's like, well, I've got to go big somehow, right? I've, I've got to project my voice and, and, and chew the scenery uh, that way as much as I can. I don't know how we landed on it, but I'm glad he did, Andrew. Oh, yeah. Um, the ridiculous goatee that is like a steam engine motif on his chin yeah. uh it's great it's wild i i i love this character um i mean as a villain let me be very clear like he's a confederate <laughs> officer i don't love this character but i love kenneth's performance let me bit a finer point on it there but yeah definitely my mark strong award i i i love every choice that he makes in this ridiculous movie yeah it's uh it's 
and, and just what a strange career that Kenneth Branagh has had. Because, like, he gets nominated for a bunch of Academy Awards for directing an adaptation of Henry V in, like, 1989. And then just goes back and forth doing all these weird things. Like, he'll direct. He did a couple of Shakespeare movies. He did a Frankenstein adaptation with Robert De Niro as the monster. It's so strange. Um, then, obviously, then turn around and he does stuff like Thor, where he directs the first Thor movie. And then now he's entering into his third on-screen appearance playing Hercule Poirot, like the classic uh, the kind of detective character. And just and then on top of all of that, he's an Academy Award-winning screenwriter. Like he won an Academy Award for his script for his movie Belfast a couple of years ago. And just what a he he's a guy that truly honestly just can basically do whatever he wants. Apparently. A true Renaissance man. Like, like he can literally be your scenery chewing. A little cheesy villain. I'm not going to deny there's there's some cheese here, but it's I think it's definitely a choice. Um, and then he can do the super serious. Like I said, the student Henry V, much to do about nothing, Hamlet, um, just all these straight up Shakespeare adaptations that he so, does like line that to makes, line. That makes sense to me, though. Yeah. When you look at this performance and you know he's a big Shakespeare fan and, and trained Shakespeare actor, like this character, you can't, I'm not say you can drop him in a Shakespeare thing or anything but something about the over-the-top nature and performative way he delivers his lines it 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 tracks i think absolutely i think it definitely is something that recurs back and like somebody like hercule poirot yeah he's definitely adding a lot of weight to that character's dialogue that i think comes from some of that shakespeare stuff and it's but he's fantastic i if kenneth branagh does something I am almost always like my eyebrows are going to go up a little bit higher at bare minimum because he's somebody that kind of does it's and then he even wrote and was in like a Jack Ryan movie they made with Chris Pine years ago. Like he truly honestly just kind of does whatever and I'm kind of here for it. I'm willing to follow him on that journey. So um, but here he is uh, he is living it up as the villain here and uh it is fantastic. We mentioned already the lead of this movie, uh, co-lead anyway, is Will Smith as Jim West. Uh, notably, I, I remember this from uh, an interview with Will at the time, whenever he was asked to be in the movie, and he's like, you know I'm black, right? Because in the TV show, Jim West is not a black man. But it's not. But it's interesting knowing that watching this movie because... Th- what, hmm, how should I say this? Will Smith's, uh, the fact that he's black is very played up in this movie. I'm trying to <laughs> figure out the best way to word that, but like it, it, they hit that point a number of times in this film. I mean, it's a it's a post Civil War movie in the Deep South. They address it, and I think. I don't know. Look, far be it from me. I'm not one to say if if this movie is on the right side or wrong side with some of its jokes or what have you. But I, 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 on some level, appreciate that they just kind of acknowledge it, hit it straightforward. Uh, I mean, the people that are racist in this film are unquestionably the bad guys. I don't think it ever gets itself into hot water by being too casual with its... <laughs> racist jokes i mean this joke this movie does have flat out jokes about about racism god it's a weird movie andrew uh very weird. but <laughs> i don't know if you can tell 
I'm uncomfortable trying to make my point here, and I'm trying to choose my words very carefully. But I appreciate Chris, the movies. Chris, get out. Move on. <laughs> ambition. But if you think it crosses a line, I'm not going to argue with you. How about that, Andrew? Absolutely How about not. that for? I think that's fine. This is something that I think. <laughs> obviously, I think the. Uh, I think the uh, responses by Will Smith to a lot of these jokes uh, would have been the selling point for a lot of people. Like Will Smith, obviously not taking any of it, rolling with the punches and dishing it right back out. I think that's kind of the vibe they were going for, and I think it works. I think he he obviously he. Uh, he doesn't let any of it hit him, and he's got something locked and loaded, ready to go for pretty much anybody that's trying to pull something out on him that uh, plays up plays up race. Um, but yeah, I um, there there's one that absolutely <laughs> slays me, Andrew, and it's whenever they are. <laughs> this is a weird setup about to hang Jim West. They're uh, have literally have a rope in the tree, and he's trying to <laughs> talk his way out of it. And he says, back in my native land, and someone goes, Georgia? (laughs) 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 Whoever that extra is that just shouts that out is... is, And his response, just just the look he makes when somebody (laughs) says Georgia is just... You can't describe it. It's just the perfect response of just like, really? Seriously? You think that's where I'm going with this? Yeah, no. Yeah, it's good. Oh yes, the drums of Georgia. Um. <laughs> uh, um, look, I'll say this though. Um, hashtag positivity podcast. I know we're focusing on the positives. But Andrew, like I said, going to this movie, I thought, you know, was Will Smith gonna be the Mark Strong? I think his performance here is totally fine. And this is like, I mean, this is coming off of Independence Day and Bad Boys and Men in Black. I mean, he's really heating up. But I don't. I don't think he's really elevating. Uh, he's he's cool. He's suave. He's charismatic. He's Will Smith. But that's kind of it. That's kind of all the movie asks of him. And uh, there's not really the extra oomph in the in the performance. You know. I I agree. I think, and I don't. I it, it sounds like a criticism, but like he's playing. It, it, it's he's really just playing a version of the same character he is in Bad Boys or Men in Black, like. That kind of cool, suave guy that's hip, always has the quips, always has the, kind of that, that that kind of Will Smith performance that he kind of becomes known for. He's just doing a shade of that here, really. Um, and I don't think that's a bad thing, um, necessarily, but it just leaves room for a particularly good scenery-chewing villain to be the standout. <laughs> um, I think this is something that also... I, like. Jim West is in this movie. He's supposed to be the coolest guy in the room, and Will Smith looks like the coolest guy in the room. So, in that regard, he's nailing it one hundred percent. And then we have his partner, played by Kevin Klein, who is U.S. Marshal Artemis Gordon. I really like this casting. Uh, follow me on this journey here, Andrew. It reminds me a little bit of like Jeff Daniels and Dumb and Dumber. That one's more of an extreme case, but like. Jeff Daniels is like a mostly a serious actor and like well-respected actor. Then Dumb and Dumbers is a wacky screwball comedy. Kevin Klein, he's done comedies before. Don't get me wrong, but I think of him as much more serious than being in a wacky uh, Western comedy. He he seems like it's, it's very interesting casting is what I'm saying, but I think his performance is great. I, 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 
uh, might even put him above Will Smith for for ranking these things here. But I uh, I really like this performance. He also has a few lines and jokes that have stuck with me over the years. Um, one of which I know I recited on like a previous episode. Don't remember which one, but whenever he is naming the aircraft, yes. and he says an air Gordon. Which is like there's like three layers to the joke, and it's 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 stupid but really funny. Um, I like this character though; I like it's fun. I think it's interesting to have a character that is like a wacky inventor, but for the most part, his inventions actually work. Like the usual trope is that it's always going wrong, uh, and they do that a little bit, but for the most part, everything works uh, as intended, and it it makes it fun. Even though Will Smith jokes the whole movie that none of them work. Um, but uh, no, <laughs> I so mean, I, Jim. Yeah, I, I do really like Kevin Klein. Um, obviously, things like A Fish Called Wanda, like that's just a, I think that's just a great, and that's a comedy though. So, like, I that's true. That is mostly, that is, that is a wacky comedy. I do mostly kind of associate him with comedies, things like A Fish Called Wanda, um, things like The January Man. Uh, there's one I'm thinking of, what called, there's one my In mom really out? likes called Dave. Where he mm. plays a presidential, a guy who gets hired to impersonate the president, then the president dies, so they try to replace him. It's it's a comedy, believe it or not. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> he's very very funny. Um, and I can't think of the other one that I'm thinking of. In and Out is also very funny, but I don't think it's the one I'm thinking of. Um, In and Out, that cover is I've never seen the movie. The cover is ingrained in my brain. Where he's like holding the flowers and like twisting in such a specific way in his tuxedo. Probably because I always assumed it was Matthew Perry. He looks like Matthew Perry <laughs> on that cover. But <laughs> but I've never seen the movie. Like I always remember seeing it like a blockbuster, like on the shelf. I should probably watch it. Yeah, I think yes, I'm thinking of I Love You to Death. Um, which is uh uh one he's in with Tracy Ullman and there's a bunch of people in it, like Phoenix River Phoenix and Keanu Reed, but he plays a uh, owner of a pizza parlor. Um, and well, uh, we just have another Renaissance man way. because he's he's yeah, he's uh, another he Shakespearean actor. He does serious stuff, but yeah, he, as you've established, Andrew, uh, plenty of comedies. Uh, maybe I shouldn't. Well, just, I'm just saying, I I associate, but like he's definitely done those like prestige formatted dramas, and he's definitely got the uh, the kind of uh, accolades that go with that. But yeah, he's he's fantastic in this. I think he's very well cast for the character. Um, the kind of ridiculousness that he has to bring forward um, is just on full display. He's perfect for, and he's a great foil to Will Smith. I think they have a good chemistry together back and forth. Um, there's obviously a tension, but it's not, you know, his character's not just racist or something, which could have been like an easy way to go with that, which would have been really troubling. Yeah. His issue with Jim West is not anything except the fact that he just doesn't like the way Jim West does things like he's like you're impulsive and you basically and the president calls him out on it too and also should be noted kevin klein does a dual performance here also playing uh president ulysses s grant who he then impersonates as his character multiple times in the film um andrew but, this uh, is this is a true story <laughs> not long before we hit record here i'm getting my notes together i'm writing out the cast I'm going up and down the cast list. I'm like, right, who do we got to shout out? And I was like, oh, I, I got to recognize the person who plays Ulysses S. Grant. And I'm looking up and down the cast list. I'm looking for the name. Like, who, who plays him? Like, how is he not listed here? That's a significant enough part. And then, like, I check Kevin Klein again and realize he's credited as Artemis Gordon slash Ulysses S. Grant. Andrew, I watched this movie and I didn't realize 
that that was actually him. I mean, <laughs> there's a scene where like he takes off the makeup and then he's back to being himself. And I just assumed it was like a Mission Impossible style special effect or whatever. But that's a really smart way to to do that gag, you know, because anytime you do have somebody put on makeup to be someone else, like another actor, there's like a there's an obvious cut or whatever. But uh, yeah, yeah. they're able to do it seamlessly here. And I thought it was special effects, but it's just because it's actually the same person. So, yeah, good shout out. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty funny. It's one of those things I I knew going into this, but like I definitely didn't know it at the time. And then like you learn it, and you're just like Kevin Klein is the greatest actor of all time. Um, but uh, <laughs> and just just a year after this, Kevin Klein is reunited with Kenneth Branagh in the animated film The Road to El Dorado. Andrew, have you seen this movie? Uh, Once upon a time. It is very have, good. It is like one of my favorite. No, I don't think it's Disney. I'm gonna check some notes here. Uh, they're the main. They're the lead roles, aren't they? Yeah, the two of which, them. Yeah, I didn't know until researching this movie. They're Tulio and Miguel. Um, if yep. you haven't seen the movie, you've probably seen the uh, the GIF of them saying both, both, both. I uh, that's I can't imagine. I can't imagine two people better to play guys named Miguel and Tulio than two <laughs> white men named Kevin and Ken. <laughs> it is interesting. Because um, you go th- through the cast, and you have like Edward James almost in there, and uh, Rosie Perez, and there's an obvious attempt to 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 branch out a little bit. But yeah, it's it's you know not uh, we'll breeze right past that. But it's a great movie, yeah. and I I highly recommend it. It is so good. Chris, I ask this genuinely: Is that movie as horny as I remember it being? Absolutely, it is. Okay. I mean, I've All heard right. just... jokes about it being part of you know kids like sexual awakening. Um, it uh. Yeah, it's a it's a shell. We don't uh, we don't need to go too is. deep into it. I just she's as a, drawn really well. My, the, the, my look, the, my looking back on the movie, I was like, I remember <laughs> this movie being pretty horny. Um, but uh, speaking of, was that movie as horny as I remember? Selma Hayek is in this movie as Rita Escobar, and Andrew. Look, I'm not trying to get horny on main here. I watched this movie a lot as a kid on loop and it was a big deal for me that you see her butt <laughs> it's like you know you're a kid and you're you're seeing a thing you're not supposed to see um they uh they play that up she she kind of comes between the two they're both flirting with her throughout the movie until you find out that she's actually uh married but uh Selma Hayek I have always loved she is in my favorite romantic comedy of all time Fools Rush In with the aforementioned Matthew Perry, as well as uh, you know Desperado and, and tons of other stuff. She's great and always warm welcome. I wish she was utilized here, actually, a little bit more. Because I, I remember her being in the movie and re-watching it. It's, she, she's only got like a few key scenes. Otherwise, she's always mm-hmm. kind of just there. I think she could have done more. But like I said, there's never a bad thing to see Sama Hack in my movie. Absolutely not. I, I definitely agree that she was... Uh... A formative awakening thing for me as a child. Um, also, uh, and obviously still out there doing her thing. Um, obviously, we talked about her in our Eternals episode um, back then. Uh, and she even recently got to join the most prestigious of all cinematic universes, the Shrek cinematic universe, um, by appearing oh, really? in Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. Uh, <laughs> well, she's obviously in the MCU as well. So her line at uh, comic conventions is is only growing, Andrew. Is too deep now. Uh, she's also about to get the magic mic cred. So that's Jeez. that's three. 
she's in the hitman's bodyguard franchise she's in uh (laughs) she's uh any uh she's in from dust till dawn so she's gonna get that 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 group of people as well desperado things like that um and uh you know it's uh, actually, I mean, she was in the original Puss in Boots movie. She's been in the Shrek universe for a while. But, um, but yeah, I, I, just getting back to one. I'm never sad to see Salma Hayek on my screen. I think she's really good. Um, obviously, another big formative one for me as a kid was Dogma, in which she just literally plays a muse that is now a stripper on Earth. Again, formative stuff as a kid. But, um, <laughs> but um, not sad to see Salma Hayek on my screen. Uh, like you said, though, not a whole lot to do here. Really does play the definition of, like, damsel in distress. Doesn't really get to get in on any of the action. Pretty much when things start to get uh, a little hairy, she just leaves the film entirely, really. Um, but, uh, yeah, never sad to see her on my screen. Mark Strong Award winner, Ted Levine, plays another villain in this movie, General Bloodbath McGrath. I really like that name. That is uh, yeah. that is memorable. And his look, uh, the prosthetic ear. He is ear, so gross. In it this is, movie. but it's gnarly. I love it. It is. Uh, <laughs> it's awesome. It's it's having that little like mini. What do you call those things, Andrew? I want to say sonophone. Did I just make up a word? <laughs> what are those things called? Sonograph. <laughs> Oh, I'm in the weeds here. What's what's like? I'm leaving you there. I am leaving you there. One hundred percent. What am I trying to think of, Andrew? Uh, you know, um, like a very, very old record player said, the big horn that projects the sound. Yeah, yeah, it has, no, a, I know it what has you're a specific about. name, um, and I'm close to it. <laughs> but it's a mini version of those for one of his ears, and it's cool because it's almost like you would believe that would be a thing back then it's not that's that's not a replacement for an ear but it's almost like well yeah how what kind of prosthetics did they make in the 1800s it's probably something like that um uh, you i agree it is gross um the entire side of his face is pretty grotesquely scarred and there's one scene in particular whenever he like empties it of wax i guess and like pours it down his shirt um, pretty gross stuff, but a gnarly design. It's scenes like that and character designs like that. When I start to realize, um, this movie and men in black aren't so far off, you know? Oh no, absolutely not. Also, you're thinking of a phonograph. Phonograph. Um, Why is it throwing an S in there? Thank also, you. Also later becomes a gramophone. Um, but, uh, yes. Leaving it all um, Just, yeah, bring it all, bring it all around. No, he. Yeah, this is, a, this is a unique look, and this is something that you can kind of see in a lot of Barry Sonnenfeld's movies, even looking back at the Addams Family movies. Yeah, a lot of those designs are based off of um, the original cartoons and comics, but the fact that they're bringing them to life in such an accurate way and finding ways to make them palatable and just still make them unique and stand out, like that's just a hallmark of his movies, really. Just that, that attention to detail, kind of making sure that nothing is left kind of behind especially when it comes to your key players um and that's one of the things i love about his movies those adams family movies especially it's actually like insane just how good everyone looks as their characters um and god those movies are so good folks you should watch them both if you haven't recently um even the normal characters like debbie in the second one is just i love the entire look and vibe of that character but um like and it's weird because like 
Arliss Loveless's look is also so specific and defined. Like, it's a very unique look with the facial hair and everything. And <laughs> Kevin Klein is arguably the one character who's got, like, he looks the most normal of everyone. There's nothing particularly insane about the way he looks. But yeah. um, Ted Levine here is just, I remember watching this as a kid, I was like, he looks so gross. Like, he just looked. And then I would watch Evolution the next year where he plays uh, the the jerk general that David Duchovny's character knows. And he looks normal. And, like, my brain couldn't quite wrap it together. And, of course, as a kid, I had no idea what Silence of the Lambs was. So I'd, my, if I had known that at the time, my brain probably would have <laughs> fractured even further. Dude, but, Evolution, um, another movie I watched all the time as a kid. Absolutely. Like, on, like on loop. Yeah, that's, I, a, it that's is, a good one. It is. Maybe one day uh, we can talk about it here. Um, easy episode. <laughs> easy. But, um, but uh, yeah, Ted Levine here. Like, I mean, and this is, like I said, Evolution, Wild Wild West, even things like Heat, like, just, just a bunch of really, like, character actor type appearances coming for him in the late 90s and early 2000s and um this one's no exception he's he's the kind of secondary villain who's got this nickname this is actually something i didn't realize until i was rewatching it here he's got this nickname of bloodbath mcgrath for this bloodbath at uh in illinois um new liberty illinois and it turns out it wasn't even him he didn't do it and there's actually like this weird, um, like he doesn't have any problem taking credit for it, but then you know Arliss turns on him and just guns down all his men, like, and he's he's horrified. And so to see the character, I mean, the character's only in the movie the first 20, 30 minutes. He's not he's he kind of leaves in the first act, but to see that character make that kind of complete switch from I'm proud of being this guy to kind of lying in the mud, dying. And just being like, it wasn't even me that did it. And then I watched him do it to me. You know, like the, the you know, the leopard eating snake isn't going to eat my face. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, um, I said that completely wrong, but I'm just going to leave it. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I know where you're going with that. Yeah. I yeah. Gotcha. But it's, yeah, so like it's the illusion comes yeah. down and he's just like pathetic and sad yeah. and got what he deserved. But yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's, you know, it's that, um and even Will Smith's character he wants McGrath because it turns out his birth parents were in New Liberty Illinois when this happened. Um so he never actually got to get reunited with them after he got separated from them as a kid. Um and so it's it's very much a situation where all of his anger is at McGrath and he realizes it wasn't even him. There's somebody else that's responsible for that and that's who he decides to go after next and uh he gets to uh Pull the lever on that one. So, um, yeah, but <laughs> comes full circle. But Ted Levine here, just doing exactly what needs to be done, but looking so it's unique. It stands out, but so gross. Like just the way his character is. I'm like, I would not want to be in the same building as you because I'm pretty sure I'd smell you. Well, those are our main players and key performances. I do want to do a quick shout out here, though, to Derek Mears who plays a, what do you call these guys? Uh, Jim West has to fight these cyborgs uh, in the belly of the giant spider. 
And they've got like blades coming out of their arms, like Baraka, or uh, this guy that Derek Mears plays has a metal cranium and a metal belly and metal genitalia. He's he's mostly metal at this point. A very gnarly looking makeup job where like the flesh goes over the metal and stuff. Looks great. Reminds me of the Angel family from Judge Dredd, uh, the look at yeah. these guys. Yeah. But uh, I want to shout this one out because, I mean, it's a memorable look. Um, but Derek Mears would go on to play Jason in the Friday the 13th uh, reboot, the most recent one that they did. And I can't say I'm a huge fan of that particular movie, but I like his performance in it. I like his Jason, and I like him as an actor. I've seen a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of conventions, of course, because of that role, and a lot of behind-the-scenes documentaries and interviews, and it just seems like such a such a cool dude, um, very distinct looking gentleman, um, has a severe case of alopecia, um, which prevents hair from growing on his body, including the eyebrows. And so a uh, very distinct looking gentleman. And that plays into the roles that he gets, I think. And he wholly welcomes it and has a great attitude about everything. Just very sweet guy. And funny to see him playing, you know, a grotesque monster here. But um, cool. Nonetheless, early role for him. Yeah, I almost got a, a Fury Road vibe from him, like a bit of a Mad Max. Yeah, I can see that character at times too. But yeah, it's it's a brief. Yeah, I, I saw that show up and I was like, "Is that? Yeah, it is. It is him." Um, yeah, I mean that's that's our main cast. Um, M. Emmett Walsh shows up as their train driver. He's just a guy I remember from a bunch of different roles over the years. Uh, Bai Ling shows up in this movie back when she was kind of becoming a big deal at the time. Um, but ironically enough for a big movie like this, the core cast is really those five. And like I said, Ted Levine leaves the movie pretty early and it really is just the four of them by and large as you're kind of driving characters of the film. So, um, that's pretty tight cast regardless there. Well, Andrew, it's time we jump into the scenes of this film, specifically our favorite scenes and, and best scenes in the movie. So Andrew, go and kick us off here with your favorite scene of the film when is this movie firing on all cylinders uh uh steaming on all cylinders the steam go through a cylinder i have i don't know andrew what is, what's your favorite scene in the movie i'm leaving you in the weeds again um, but, <laughs> um i gotta go with our finale everything on the giant spider it's it's just so insane and over the top and ridiculous but at the same time like i can't help but just like the entire movie's building to this like this is the 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 big reveal of the spider comes pretty late in the film um and then the whole rest of the movie the spider is just the centerpiece of the film and so when we finally get all of our characters kind of together um we get a bunch of different fights uh kevin klein pulling double duty playing ulysses s grant and artemis gordon Jim West having the aforementioned fight there with all of these augmented uh, henchmen um, getting a few, little bit of help here and there. Um, I just, it for me, it's when the movie, like, it, I, in moments like that, I'm like, this movie knows exactly what it is. But there's other times where I'm like, I don't know if it does. But in this moment, I'm kind of like, it's campy. It's over the top. It's ridiculous. We're leaning into all the over the top uh, kind of bombastic nature of this as we can. Um, you get even more kind of scenery chewing for Kenneth Branagh and Will Smith. Uh, like I said, ultimately, it does come down to Will Smith has the opportunity to kill Loveless and he takes it. Um, obviously, letting uh, Loveless plunge to his death. 
while Will Smith's character, James West, is able to grab on to Metalhead's feet and survive. Um, but uh, so Derek Mears also proving vital in Jim West surviving this movie. <laughs> but uh, overall, yeah, it's for me, it's where it's uh, it's where the hydraulics are. No, I'm not even going to try. See, um, it's, it's, but, it's uh, not as easy as it sounds, yeah, Andrew. It's where the uh, hydraulics are at full extension. The hydraulics are a steaming, Andrew. Hydraulics don't steam. Um, but, uh, but it's steampunk. I'm trying to work it in. You have to be scientifically accurate in this movie <laughs> with a giant spider. It's ridiculous. Um, but also just the notion. Like, I, I just love the notion that in 1869, like, what would a man, uh, like, would a man with a giant robotic spider like that be able to take over the country? I kind of feel like he would. Like, I, yeah, I, don't I mean, that's feel like, far above and beyond like any other. <laughs> Technology. We don't have a giant. We don't have a giant hornet mech waiting somewhere, do we? The U.S. I mean, government this needs is, to classify those documents. That's what I'm talking about. This is what very mechs do similar. We have? <laughs> this is very similar to uh, Jonah Hex and yeah. uh, his plan to take over the country with a super advanced weapon that you know outguns anything yeah, else. There's no way that is. we could stand through it. Yeah, but yeah, I just I had that moment more than once where like he's facing down grant at the railroad unification and i'm just like yeah there's not a single thing anyone be able to do against this thing not even close but uh but thankfully it is not real but uh yeah so anyway i'm going with our finale uh which ultimately culminates in jim and artemis riding the spider back to washington (laughs) um i'm guessing there's no room on that that train andrew none uh, well to be fair if i were president grant i don't know if i would want to ride on a train with them at that point either but um <laughs> but yeah i i just love that they're just riding the spider back to washington and i'm like whoa whoa we're just keeping this thing i mean why wouldn't you yeah it's it's a lot of fun uh this finale i mean the giant spider is like definitely like the punchline of this movie um when people reference it and rag on it and there's a whole bit in south park with eric cartman when he's playing with Clyde Frog and pretending to play Wild Wild West with a giant spider. It's um it's funny, but like in the universe, in the world that they've built, it's not like it exactly comes out of nowhere. We've seen I, impossible technology throughout the entire film. And if you accepted all that, you can surely accept a giant spider. <laughs> and uh yeah, they, they get a lot of a lot of juice out of that spider. Like they have the fight, like I said, in the belly of the spider. They have them flying uh to the top of the spider to to board it. And then you've got the fight like over the side of it, and the spider shoots like this cannon that blows stuff up. It's absolutely wild. Um one of the uh got look hashtag PP. This is ultimately a positive thing, but there's like a there's like a painful pun during the fight with the uh, the enhanced fellas, where uh, the guy that has the the Baraka blades, uh, Jim West says, "That's it, no more, Mister Knife Guy." Ugh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the the thing about that one is, and I, I'm not picking up the part of the movie. The movie knows what it is, like I said, for the most part. But like, do you think that phrase that he's referencing was around? In 1869, No, no. More Mr. Nice Guy? No, it's like an no. action movie thing, right? Alice Cooper has a song called No More Mr. Nice Guy in the 70s. Like, it's, it's, 
No, it's not. It's not, but it's not around in 1869. <laughs> right, exactly. There's, uh, I kept catch. I kept. I don't know why this stuck out to me, but I kept catching these. Like, um, so this one, it would be around. I just thought the character saying it was interesting. But uh, uh, Bloodbath McGrath says to, to Loveless, "I'd follow you into the jaws of Cerberus itself." It's like a Greek mythology reference, which I wouldn't expect a. <laughs> Confederate general to be a big fan of, or well, may I guess we'd have access to it. I guess you could read Greek mythology. I don't, I don't know. History is not my thing, but it it stood out. And then uh, lastly, during uh, Gordon and West, one of the first uh, meetups here, Gordon chastises him and says, "Not every situation calls for your patented shoot first, shoot later." Shoot some more, and then when everyone's dead, try to ask a question. Referencing the phrase, shoot first, ask questions later, which yes. I don't know if it was around at the time, but apparently it's such yeah. a common phrase that he can subvert it and uh, and have a play on it. Even in 1869, they were already sick of that phrase, apparently. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of, uh, I don't know what you call those, anachronisms? Um, or just, yeah, there's a lot of phrases where I'm like, I don't know if this was a thing then. Honestly, yeah, and um, I don't care. Like I, I'm not, yeah, again, I'm not doing whatever. this like poke holes. It's a movie, in the movie with a giant <laughs> mechanical spider in it. I'm not <laughs> stopping to go. Whoa, 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 whoa! That didn't exist yet. Um, it's like the opposite problem of like sci-fi shows, like Star Trek. Um, the Orville is guilty of this. Uh, they tend to always have at least one character in the show that is a fan of ancient pop culture, which yeah. is our current time. And that gives them an excuse to constantly reference celebrities and things that references whoa, that whoa, we whoa, would whoa, know. Whoa, 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 Are you telling me that Seth MacFarlane has a show with endless pop culture references? <laughs> hang on, hang on, hang on. Easy I don't wanna... there, Chris. Oh. <laughs> hang on now. The Orville is a wonderful, wonderful show. I'm not it, saying it's not a wonderful show. It I'm is, saying it is, Seth MacFarlane it is. does that in every show he does. Um, I won't say it's endless pop culture references. And if, I hope that doesn't leave a bad taste in your mouth. Andrew, you got to watch The Orville. Everybody, tell Andrew to watch The Orville. It's so good. No, but Star Trek does the um, same thing. Star Trek will do like, you know, uh, this guy is, you know, the worst thing since Hitler or whatever. You know, the referencing stuff that hundreds, thousands of years in the future yeah. wouldn't make any sense for them to be referencing. But they've got to relate to the current audience that's watching. So you have the same problem as shows set too far in the past. Where if they, especially if something supposed to be fun and adventurous like this, if they only spoke in the verbiage of the time, it's going to be very hard to be relatable. So they got to, you know, find that middle ground, take some liberties there. Again, I'm not ragged on the movie. I just, it's, it's funny. I just like uh, finding those things. Um, Andrew, great pick for favorite scene. That's certainly uh, a lot of fun. It's, it's not that where I'm going to go with my favorite scene, but I can't fault you. And most of the big set pieces here, I mean, they're all really fun. I like a lot of stuff on the train. I like the finale. But I think the one that ultimately I'm going to highlight as my favorite scene is whenever Gordon and West are left for dead in the desert with a magnetic collar. (laughs) This scene has really stuck with me. I was fascinated by this technology as a kid. Like, I knew it wasn't real. I knew it couldn't exist. In 1869. But is this something we could do now with high-powered magnets? I don't know. Uh, so, of course, in classic villain fashion, in, uh, in one of the ways, but not the only way, one of the ways this movie reminds me of James Bond 
Our villain simply leaves the heroes for dead rather than doing the easy thing of killing them himself. He leaves them. He literally like rides the train away and leaves them in this trap that there's no way they can get out of. And of course, as soon as they cross this barrier, a giant machine launches a metal disc that is attracted to the high-powered magnet on their neck. And if it reaches them, it will decapitate them, as we saw in the opening of this movie. So they got to run through their lives. And I think it's very cool that they set this in a cornfield. So you got those cool above, uh, like, bird's eye shots of the blade cutting through the cornfield and making these very clear paths of where they're running. I think the eventual solution uh, to this, where they jump into each other's arms and fall down the pit, so the blades hit each other, they collide, and they explode. (laughs) For some reason, there's an explosion, even though they're both just metal. Um, I thought it was a very clever way to get out of it. And then they get a lot of comedy with having these magnetic collars on their neck and uh, getting attracted to each other (laughs) magnetically um very fun and then i love the shot where they uh finally separate and they run as fast as they can in opposite directions only to be you know they reach off screen (laughs) and pulled back together and collide a very men in black visual uh that reminds me of you know like uh the the alien baby being born in the first men in black you know just a very wacky visual um, it's good. It's a lot of fun, and it's kind of got everything that I like about this movie. It's got uh, it's got action, uh, it's got comedy, and it's wacky as hell. Favorite scene of the movie? Yeah, this is tons of comedy here. It's really, really because you get a we get like a like a deadly serious version of the scene at the beginning of the film where we like see uh, this thing in action, and so you know the whole time after you're watching that, you're like, oh man, is this gonna how's this gonna come back? And that pays off here. But yeah, uh, so, you know, for a scene about two dudes in magnetic collars getting hunted down by giant razor circles, uh, it's very funny. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> but uh, you get a lot of, you get the rapport between the characters that shows through very clearly here. And uh, it's just a good time. I can't deny that. Um, and then, like you said, it kind of dovetails into our, into our third act with our giant spider. Um, kind of runs right into that. <laughs> it runs right into actually a night scene that is not part of my favorite scene in this movie because there's a lot of close-ups of a spider. I literally look away from the screen. Like a spider crawls on the Jim West. Is the mechanical spider all right? The mechanical spider's fine. Yeah, no, that's right, yeah, whatever. Yeah. A thing in the shape of a spider is fine. Or even like the spider icon that is on so much of his stuff is fine. But it once it can't be realistic it's an actual thing yes an actual spider especially like the tarantula sized spiders that they have the uh the music video for this has like its own plot and scenes shot for the music video with selma hayek that aren't in the movie um that involve spiders selma hayek's like strapped to a table and spiders crawling her it's horrifying uh scary stuff um and also will smith throws his hat and he's in a black suit and then he uh catches his hat but his hat is now white and he's now wearing a white suit. I saw that music video a lot, Andrew, along with this movie. <laughs> I, I see. I I gather that. Um, but yeah, I um, yeah, I didn't think about that. Um, but yeah, I uh, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. I don't spider. hate spiders as much as you do, but they definitely like like the one with the cake. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but, that's uh, pretty gross. Yeah, yeah. That was pretty gross. But uh, either way, I do agree this scene is great. Uh, outside that clip, I could get rid of that. Um, just eating like a charred lizard. It's just, it's like, do you have to do that? 
Um, how long's it been? Um, but uh, <laughs> gotta eat. Man. Um, I guess. But uh, you know, don't you worry about like botulism or salmonella? Um, no, Andrew. I don't think in 1869 Jim West was worried about those things. Maybe he should have been. Um, but uh, <laughs> anyway. Uh, but no, this is a great scene. Um, like I said, it's also coming pretty late in the film, uh, kind of after their initial confrontation with Loveless, and it's just a lot of fun. Speaking of that intro scene where we see the blade in action for the first time, uh, I didn't notice this until this watch, but like the guy that's running away from it, he's like exhausted, and uh, he's like mumbling words because he's terrified and very clearly he's going and goes ah, giant spider <laughs> just as he's running like he's <laughs> traumatized by seeing the giant spider uh, I just love that it's, that giant spider is referenced in like the first 45 seconds of this movie it's great um, it is um, the whole movie just coming back to uh, coming back around our uh, intro to Jim West um, another scene seared into my brain as he's up in a, uh, water tower with a lovely young woman and, uh, very unsanitary, by the way, <laughs> being naked in the town's water tower. Uh, uh yeah. Um, how did they get water yeah. up in a water tower in the 1800s, Andrew? And why is that a tower? Why does the water have to be so far off the ground? Is it to create water pressure? It's like it yes, comes down that, a pipe. That's is typically... That? That was typically the idea of water towers, especially in the sense of, uh, you know, pre, you know, PSI pressure and pipes is if it was up and it had to come down to your house, you could just like come or if you were just going to the water tower, you could open it up and it would come down into whatever you had. Um, but uh, I mean, does that have to know, be man. like 50 I guess feet like, in the air, I guess you though? could still like pump. I guess you could still like pump water like a like a, a water pump was definitely like a hand like a hand pump was certainly a thing. You know, people would do wells and crap like that. But Are we sure well, water towers were a real thing in the West? Or is it like tumbleweeds and showdowns on Main Street where it's just a movie thing? No, I think water towers were only in the East. Um, <laughs> I don't think they came to the West. Um, oh, okay. Uh, like New I have had water no towers. idea. Boston <laughs> has water towers. Um, uh, nobody else does. Um, but of course, the the tower comes crashing down, and uh, you see a lot of Will Smith in the uh, opening of this movie. Um, you do, but it, it kind of sets the pace. This opening with Will Smith meeting Gordon uh, at a at a brothel. <laughs> like it's another thing about this movie. Like it at times it's so wacky and so silly, but at times kind of pushes the envelope of like PG thirteen, right? A little bit, yeah. Um, it is a little bit. Um, it really does play with that uh, a lot um, with some of the visuals and stuff. But uh, I wasn't complaining as a kid. <laughs> sure. There is there is another scene seared into my brain. I will never forget it. I'm not going to repeat any of the lines from it. Uh, but it's like a standoff between Jim West. And Loveless, where they trade insults back and forth. And I think it's another scene that kind of gets highlighted when people go back and talk about this movie. And uh, it's, <laughs> it is what it is. It's just the vibe of this movie, though. Something about it feels very pre-9-11. Something about the way they're just 
man, they're just out there making a fun movie. Uh, racism is a thing that you can joke about and it's fine. Uh, you can ignore the greater conversation around it. You don't feel like you have to address something so serious. Like, it's just this lightness that's in the movie that in some ways uh, ages well, in some ways doesn't. Like, I'm, I'm not going to pretend like I, I wish movies were still like this or anything. But something about it just feels so like... um. I don't know, turn of the century, we can make these giant blockbusters that aren't only superhero movies, that aren't so homogenized, just a fun buddy cop adventure that's a little bit of sci-fi. Uh, it just, it it feels very 1999 to me, you know? Like it was I, a more innocent time. Um, uh, yeah, genuinely, genuinely. And genuinely. I, I, I don't, I don't mean that as like a gag. It, it was just a time where things felt a little simpler. A little bit. And I'll be honest, like, I, uh, this movie's pretty fun. Um, I think we've highlighted just about all the, the high points that I have for this movie. Uh, I understand why it doesn't have great reviews. I understand why it kind of became a joke and laughing stock. But I'll be honest, though, I bet, like, I don't know how this movie did for test audiences, but I bet, like, when the producers watched this movie when it was completed, they were like, great, we have another Men in Black on our hands. Like this, this isn't that different than Men in Black. Like Men in Black just it has like not. this secret sauce that made everything work. Whereas this one, it does the same over the top sci-fi, wacky, goofy stuff. But it just the the end result isn't as big as Men in Black. And it's hard to say exactly what it was, but uh, you can just tell they were trying to hit that target again. And it, you know, it was lightning in a bottle that first Men in Black movie apparently. It- it really is. Um, it reminds me of the honest trailer for Ghostbusters 2. It's the first movie, but bad. Um, but no. <laughs> but uh, um, you definitely, like I said, watching this movie more than once, I was like, they're trying to get that that Men in Black energy. This was not Sony, though. I think this was 20th Century. No, this was Warner Brothers. Um, so definitely a different studio, but I think they were just trying to capitalize on, you know, Look at the look look at our look at our format. We got uh Will Smith with an aged uh white dude who's a perfectly great actor. Um and in this case that guy also plays his boss. Um but there's definitely a lot of pieces uh that they're trying to replay here and it just like you said it doesn't quite get there. But um there's still a lot of fun to have here, I think. I think I think but yeah, I definitely agree with the notion that a producer probably watched this and was like wait for the money train fellas <laughs> i gotta do a quick shout out to the uh, the other thing that reminded me of james bond movies which is loveless's three women companions that he keeps around uh yeah you have uh bailing whose character is uh miss may lee east her last name is east um she is from the east and there's a lot of east meets west jokes um, you have a one woman who can read lips, and her name is Miss Lippenreader. <laughs> then you have another woman who uh, is always shooting guns, and her name is Munisha. Um, very on the nose, very punny women, very 007. Yes, absolutely. Um, all with very, very specific jobs that are just on the nose. Or in this case, on the lips, I guess. I don't know.
TV movie month. Andrew, I'm excited. I'm excited for this month. I'm excited to to dive into the ones that we have selected. If you want to see all the upcoming movies for the month, you can. Just hop into our Discord. There's a link in the show notes, and we'll talk about it there. You can leave us your positive thoughts on movies that we have coming up, and we can read it whenever we record that episode. But uh, needless to say, a lot of variety uh, from the movies coming out this month. Indeed. I'm excited. I'm excited to see where uh, this... uh journey takes us and uh we'll definitely be going to some far reaches of the universe with some of these movies before we reach those corners of said universe though it is time for the question of the week if you want to ask us a question for a future episode you can again right there in the discord or maybe send us an email best of the rest pod at gmail.com but this question comes from dr Douglas in our discord who asks which do y'all think has aged better Sam Raimi's Spider-Man movies or the X-Men movies? Interesting. Very interesting. So let's hmm, let's maybe look the at this. The answer is Spider-Man. There's no Spider-Man what are we doing? better. The Hang, on. Hang on. Uh-oh. I have a hard time judging this as a whole because I think both franchises have some ups and downs. But let's look at just the first entry. Spider-Man 1 Versus X Men, which one is aged better? Do you still go Spider Man? Spider Man, like I don't know why you're acting uh, like this. I don't know. I don't know. See, I, there's a there's a key difference for me of why I think Spider Man is aged better versus X Men. I'm going to tell okay. you right now because this is my show too. Um, but um, <laughs> um, the thing when I go back and watch X Men now, obviously the effects are dated, but a lot of things of the time are going to run into that. But when I watch X Men now, what I'm watching is a movie that's afraid to be an X-Men movie. It's a movie that needs to make it dark. It needs to make it palatable. It has to take all those concepts that you love, but it has to make them kind of serious and kind of straightforward and kind of everybody wears black leather and even the villains don't have colorful costumes. Everybody's plain. Everybody's flat. Everybody is kind of, hashtag PP, boring. Um, obviously Hugh Jackman's Wolverine becomes this breakout star from it that we're still going to see. But by and large, when I watch X-Men, it falls into that category of movies that to me feel like they're afraid to be about the thing they're about. I never feel that way watching Spider-Man. Obviously it there's is, some, it is not afraid to, to be a comic book movie. That is, that is Spider-Man true. is very, dare I say goofy at times. It leans into it. It has no issue being a Spider-Man movie. And that, to me, makes it unquestionable as far as which one has aged better, at least for me, because I would much rather watch the movie that is not ashamed of what it is versus the movie that is ashamed of what it is. Andrew, uh, it is hard to play devil's advocate on this one. I think that is an excellent point. And I I guess I got to agree. The first Spider-Man has aged better, even though I've gone on record as saying it's not my favorite superhero movie, but... Right. Um, I think you can give the nod, or at least yeah. I can give the nod on a few cases to X Men. Like I think the casting has held up better, but overall, yeah, I think you're you're winning that one. Um, we all just collectively love to seeing Willem Dafoe back as the Green Goblin, Chris. Don't yeah, you bring that's... me that? Um, <laughs> that is like the one area, oddly, on Spider Man where they were afraid to go comic booky, where they backed out of doing like the 
the actual goblin look and they, they, went made, with him, the suit. they made him arguably even look sillier though it's strange <laughs> that's like, it's, true it is the look in the silly. movie is arguably more ridiculous than a standard green goblin costume would look like <laughs> um it's a little strange but um i think i think spider-man 2 versus x-men 2 is clearly spider-man 2 um X-Men yes. 2 is weird. I, I remember that being the biggest oh, deal when it first came well, out. Well, and I, for the longest time, I still felt like you heard people say that X2 was, like, the, the bar for X-Men movies. Like, yeah. it, like, people would put X-Men 2 in, like, the top five comic book movies of all time for a long time. And then I went back and rewatched it, and just, man. It's kind of boring. I, yeah, they're, they're both really boring. Like, yeah. I say that as nicely... I'm not saying it nicely. I'm I'm not at all, but like they're just they're <clears throat> like the first X-Men kind of I think got by on like, oh man, we're seeing like a serious attempt at an X-Men movie. Like after years of hearing about it and decades and stuff, it was kind of finally like, oh wow, we're watching an X-Men movie. They've got their powers, they got their names. Obviously, it gives birth to the yellow spandex moment, but by and large, it was just, I think the novelty of that kind of helped the movie push past some of those things. But when you go back and watch X2, it's like the novelty's gone and you're just kind of like, nope, we're still wearing flat, boring costumes and we're still talking a whole lot. And uh, I, yeah, I used to be a big advocate for X-Men 2, but I rewatched it and was just kind of like, oof. So I think... I. I Arguably, now it's funny to look back on it. I think we established this in our X Men Three episode that arguably the movie of that original X Men trilogy that held up the best is X Men Three. Um, I that movie's a lot of fun. The action is great. The casting um, is awesome. You know, Beast was great. They get a little comic booky with like things like Beast. The costumes get a little bit of color in them. <laughs> they fit. They color like the piping of their. Uh, black leather costumes. Uh, we start seeing a lot more characters and leaning into a lot of comic booky stuff. But yeah, I, that third entry definitely uh, underrated. Definitely a glow up. Um, but you can say the same thing about Spider Man Three. That was panned on release, and when we went back and vi- revisited it, uh, there's a lot to like there. I think it's Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst's best performance as those two characters. I think there's a lot to like there. Both both entries, the threes, have uh, had major glow ups. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess I'm agree with you, Andrew. The Spider-Man movies have aged better. Um, I, I, I do, I don't know why I feel like I need to defend these blockbuster movies that are the X-Men films. And, uh, I'm not so much, I mean, I just called a couple of them boring, but it is important. I mean, you're right. The, the criticism that it's afraid to be a comic book movie is very fair. But I think it was important to push the envelope a little bit in that direction because I think that leads to things like The Dark Knight uh, or just that whole trilogy, Batman Begins as well, where you can take this concept and ground it in reality and tell a great story that happens to have a superhero and that superhero still gets to be the superhero. It's got to be the right material. I think Batman just works really well for that take. Even though it's not the only take on Batman. Uh, not the only good take anyway. Um, I think in that case it worked out. And I think uh, X-Men, there's like a direct line between X-Men and, uh, and those films. So I think it was, um, it broke down some important barriers. Um, and X-Men came out before Spider-Man. It was the, the first superhero blockbuster that launched off this era that we're still in. So yeah, still some important things happening by the X-Men movies. Chris, 
I need you to know that my internet just died briefly and I texted you and I lost the connection and I came back just in time for the end of that speech. So I missed nothing, apparently. <laughs> I saw the screen go blank. Yeah, I I was kind of like, oh, is he still he's still going? Um, uh, I assume what you were speaking about, though, was that the the legacy of the X-Men films being as important as it is. Yeah, yeah. Yes, more or less. And I agree with that. Uh, obviously, X-Men gets there first, and I think, like you said, there's a direct line, but and you talk about the two different schools of thought, but if X-Men's not a success, we probably don't get Spider-Man. Um, there's enough of a gap between those movies, I think, that if X-Men flops or doesn't succeed, Spider-Man does not happen at bare minimum in that form. Um, and so there's a lot to put on something like the X-Men films as far as its importance. I know a lot of people try to point to Blade as kind of like the the first, oh, that was the first successful comic book movie, but like it it's not consumable for everyone. It's a much more obscure character. The stakes yeah, are much lower. The, the thing um, is Spider-Man and X-Men are adaptations of characters that the pop that the mainstream was aware of already. We knew the cartoon, right. we knew the characters and we saw them successfully translated to a live action film blade. It's a great movie. I'll defend it all day long, but this wasn't a character we were already familiar with. And then we got the adaptation. And I think that's the key difference. I agree. I think that is absolutely the key difference. And, um, you said blades. Great. Not going to say anything to the contrary, but, uh, but yeah, X-Men and Spider-Man are, I mean, did you talk about like the two divergent paths from those films? Basically, I drew a line from X Men to the Dark Knight, and yeah, yeah Spider Man goes the other direction. Spider Man goes to like Iron Man, um, where you get kind of the two schools of thought, and they're both valid. They both brought us some great films, but uh, yeah, for me though, if I'm going back and watching something for fun, I'm always going to put on Spider Man. I'm I'm always going to go back to Spider Man because it was something that became. You know, you watch something like The Dark Knight and you're just like, man, this is awesome. But it's such a it's such a snapshot of what Batman is and is capable of. And it's actually kind of the issue that I still kind of have with Batman movies is we still seem to be playing in this like hyper real, gritty, dark playground for Batman. There's so much more to the character. And that's actually kind of what helped me look back on something like what helped me look back on something like Adam West as Batman and actually be able to get a lot of enjoyment out of it because it's ridiculous. It's over the top and it's campy, but it's not atypical of Batman at the time. And um, it's a lot of fun to go back and watch because it is super comic booky. And sometimes that's what I really want to see. Like, it's cool. Dark Knight is a great movie. I'm never going to have an issue going back and watching The Dark Knight or somebody tells me Dark Knight is their favorite superhero film of all time. I'm never going to be like, uh, no. But for me, the brightness, the vividness, the colors, the ridiculous villains, the over-the-top plots that don't make any sense, um, I I always love that. And it always is going to make me happy to watch. And so Spider-Man fits into that vein uh, a little bit better than, a lot better than X-Men does. Hashtag PP. There you have it. Sam Raimi, Spider-Man, age better. Final answer. Maybe it's time to to give those movies a rewatch. And of course, keep in mind that maybe not every movie is great. But all movies have greatness. 
Thank you to Mark Benavides for singing our theme song. Check him out on Instagram at NotThatMarkAnthony. And thanks to Mitch for the music. You can check him out on Twitter at I'mABiggieBoy. And check our show notes for the SoundCloud link. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. It's the only way that we grow. And follow us on social media at BOTRCast. Thank you. Take a look at this creative team. The movie is written by a couple, a couple pairs of writing duos. That's that's redundant. Pairs of writing duos. The movie is well, written by the ATM a... machine. There, Chris. Um... <laughs> Pin number. Uh, there's a lot to like there. I think it's uh, Toby Maguire and Kirsten Stewart's. The Kirsten Stewart. Um, Kristen Stewart. My goodness. Um. um What's her name, Andrew? Kirsten Dunst. Kirsten Dunst.